Good morning, West Falls Church, and good morning, Grace Live, and good morning, everybody's in the room. Um, it's so great that we could be together as a community in three different places. Today, we're going to talk a lot about the community that Christ is calling us to be through the book of Revelation, what he was calling them to be. I just watched this BBC report on marlins. You realize that marlins are the fastest fish in the ocean? Yeah, how fast they can swim? 80 miles an hour. 80 miles an hour. They're like a Formula One racing car. They can just fly. That's why, I mean, I've never caught a marlin. But can you imagine what it'd be like to catch a marlin? That would be incredible. And that's because the home for them is an ocean. Like If you took a marlin out of its home, out of an ocean, it would never be able to be everything it was meant to be. Same goes for us. Where is our home? Today we're going to talk about heaven is our home. I read this great quote. That some people search the entire world looking for what they need and return home to find it. Where is your home? I looked up this past week just some definitions of home. And I thought, one, they just gave some one-word answers. And they said, home is a place where we find security. It's a place we find belonging, a place where we find identity. But more than anything else, they said, a home is a place where our lives are centered. Where is your home? Have you ever noticed that we're always kind of looking for the next thing? Well, like, what's next? We're never fully satisfied. Could it be that's because heaven is our home? You know, the Bible talks a lot about the fact that our citizenship is not of this world. Right? We're longing for another country, for another home. Christ is going to prepare a home for us. Could it be that we're longing to find that full satisfaction of life and it just is impossible because this is not our home? Heaven is our home? Well, our theme verse is Colossians chapter three, verse number one, and it says this, that we should set our sights on the realities of heaven. And the wording there simply means this, that we should keep pursuing and thinking about and talking about heaven, like an ongoing way. In other words, what the Bible is telling us is is that we should think a whole lot more about heaven. So I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 21, these first eight verses in this, because The book of Revelation is just saturated with heaven. And so for the next two weeks, we're actually going to focus in here. This is what it says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had disappeared and had no sea. Then I saw new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down from God in heaven. It was like a bride dressed in her wedding gown and ready to meet her husband. I heard a loud voice shout from the throne. God's home is now with his people. He will live with them and they will be his own. Yes, God will make his home among his people. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes and there'll be no more death, crying, suffering, or pain. These things of the past are gone forever. Then one sitting on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Write down what I've said. My words are true and can be trusted. Everything is finished. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give water from the life-giving fountain to everyone who is thirsty. I'd like to stop right there. You know, when you read about like things like this, like life-giving water and stuff, it means that our, what we're really longing for will be fully satisfied and will be satisfied here in heaven. Verse 7, all who win the victory, which is what Revelation is really all about, will be given these blessings. I will be their God and they'll be my people and I will tell you what will happen 
Now, this is where it gets a little tough, and we'll talk more about it next week. To cowards and to everyone who is unfaithful or dirty-minded or who murders or who is sexually immoral or uses witchcraft or worship idols or tells lies, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire and burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, okay, so it doesn't end in the best way, all right? Uh, but we'll exp- well, hopefully we'll explain a little bit of that more today and then much more, you know, next week. And there's a lot of very smart theologians who believe that the descriptions of hell as being a place of fire, you know, and of darkness and fire and darkness don't go together, right? Because fire tends to bring a lot of light. A lot of them believe that it's a metaphor for the pain that we'll feel because we're actually hell. What hell actually means is to be separated from God, that we'll be alone, that we'll be solitary from God. And so there's not actually fire and there's not actually a lake. There's a lot of people who believe that. They're pretty, pretty smart. I'm going to leave it there. The next couple weeks, we're going to talk uh, a lot about Revelation 21. We're going to think a lot more about heaven as we have been doing. So we're called here in Revelation throughout the whole book, not just what I read, to be a community of hope, of meaning, of purpose, to be a place of future, a place where there's justice, right? We've searched the whole world looking for what we need and we return home to find it and heaven is actually our home. I want to give you some context. I did a few weeks ago. I'd like to give you some more if I can, just to put some um, thought around this, what's happening in the book of Revelation. So when this book was written, they were experiencing, the community it was written to by John was experiencing the worst persecution they'd ever experienced in their lives, in the life of the church. So it's under the Roman emperor Domitian. And they were actually taking people, pulling them out of their homes, taking all their money from them. They were taking them to the Colosseum where they were being ripped apart by animals while the crowds cheered on as they were killed. They were being coated with pitch and impaled on poles and set on fire. These type of things were going on. So they were, they were experiencing a persecution to a level that's really hard for us to even imagine. We couldn't even imagine. Like even if somebody made a movie about it, when it would come on the screen, what they were experiencing, we'd have to turn our eyes away because it would just be too much. It would overwhelm us. And so the book of Revelation is written to a group of people who are experiencing terrible suffering and pain. And it was written to give them hope and a future and that there is a home, some place that they're going to, to build them up. So there's a list of books at the bottom of your bulletin, and I think it's going to come up on the screen and um, also over at West Falls Church and Grace Live as well. You'll see it there. So there's a list of books. I recommend all those books. One of those books is by Richard Hayes. And this is what Richard Hayes says, says that the book of Revelation is a resistance document calling a community, rallying the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation to not be complacent, but to be courageous and to pour hope into their own lives, into the world around them. That's what the book of Revelation is really all about. And the church is an alternative community under the lordship of Jesus Christ, young and old, rich and poor. There'd never been anything like this before. There'd never been a community like this where it was male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, all nationalities standing together under one roof, under one community, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, following his word, his will. It has never happened before. It never had happened in history. And to this day, I've said this many times, the Christian movement is the most diverse movement that the world has ever seen, even to this day. Now, Rome was ruling by the power of violence and the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the king of kings and the lord of lords was going to rule in precisely the opposite way, not by a show of force. 
And a shocking reversal of things. Actually, instead of through force, Jesus Christ was going to be proclaimed as the only one worthy because he wasn't going to rule by force, but by laying his life down. Now, I'd like to recap just a couple things that we've been saying over the past couple weeks so we can take a running start at this. This is what we said when it comes to heaven and when it comes to faith. Number one, we said this, we're all living by faith. Every single person is. Doesn't matter what your religious belief is or you don't believe in anything at all. You don't believe in God. We're all because you cannot demonstrably prove that God does not exist or God does exist. You can't prove either one. You can't demonstrably prove it. There is evidence. There is definitely evidence. So every single person is living by faith. This is a pretty known fact. Even uh, secular humanist uh, philosophers, they will agree to this. We're all living by faith. Number two, we're all believing in things that we cannot see. You can't see God and you can't see gravity. And we're all believing in gravity. So we're all believing in things that we cannot see, right? It levels the field for all of us. So this is something to think about when we're talking about heaven and we're talking about God and a future and a home. If there is no God and if there is no heaven, then it's going to have a profound effect on all of us in many ways, personally and as a society. What it means is if there isn't a heaven and there isn't a God, then there cannot be meaning and there cannot be purpose, There can't be a future, there can't be justice, there can't be hope, those things. Now, I'm not saying that you can't personally, you can't personally say, I'm going to have hope or I'm going to make meaning. Of course you can personally, because there cannot be any objective morality or objective hope and meaning and purpose. I can have personal opinions about everything, but there is not an ought. I say, you should believe this way, you should do this, but there's never an ought to it because there's not an objective morality out there for that. This, I'm not saying anything at all that, that some very smart people who are secular humanists would say themselves. It's just the reality, all right? So I quoted last week from that famous, uh, well, hit show house dr house says we're all just a bag of cells and waste with an expiration date and we've come to find that our lives actually mean nothing now we have to grapple with that reality that's what it means what will we then choose to believe we have it so good as i said earlier this book is written to a group of people who are suffering terribly Terribly, I mean, terrible times, and yet they had hope. And we today, everybody, and I just, just by, just by facts, I know there's a lot of spin on things that you hear about, but factually speaking, we are living in the greatest time that this world has ever seen. We're far healthier, we're far wealthier, we live longer, we live better lives, we live more comfortable lives than we ever have before, and yet depression and suicide are exploding. I just read recently the NYPD declared a mental health crisis for their officers because so So many of them have committed suicide. And so here you have a group of people suffering terribly and yet have hope and meaning and purpose and look into our future. And here we are today struggling with hope and struggling with depression and struggling with suicide rates that are exploding. And yet we have it so well. So what is the difference? Could it be that there's this growing sentiment that there isn't a God and that we're just a bag of cells and waste and we have an expiration date and our life has no meaning? Could it be a portion of that? It's just something for us to think about, right? Like I said, there is no objective morality. There is only nature. And in nature, everybody, in nature, everybody, the strong eats the weak. 
So what could be wrong with that? If only, if we only believe that there is nature, the strong eats the weak. And so what could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with injustice? What could be wrong with racism? What could be wrong with prejudice? If the strong eats the weak and there's only nature, why don't we follow suit? So it leaves us in a precarious situation. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no universal human rights. And I touched on this last week, but if somebody is an atheist, and atheists have actually said this, right? If somebody is an atheist and yet they believe that people ought to practice universal human rights, they're actually at their very heart a Christian because that's a Christian concept that has been introduced to the world. So we have to think about a consistent set of beliefs. Okay, well, there you go. There's the recap of where we are, and let's keep moving here. So Revelation, it's a lot about heaven, it's a lot about judgment, and it's a lot about justice. Now, judgment is something we don't like to hear a lot about, right? People start talking about a God. I mean, there's a few people, actually. There's a few people who like to hear about that. Like every now and then I'll say, some people come to me and say, hey, man, I just, I like it when you give those hellfire and brimstone messages. It just makes me feel better when I come to church and I feel that. So yes, okay, yes, there are some people who love to, you know, let's talk about sending people to hell and people burning in the fire. So, okay, all right, all right, all right. But most of us don't like to hear it. We bristle a little bit when we hear about judgment, right? We don't, we don't like it. We don't, and Revelation actually is filled with judgment. It's filled with it all over the place. So why would that be? Listen, I don't like to hear about judgment unless I've suffered injustice. And then I welcome it. I said, please, let's, can we talk about it more? So let's remember who we're being written to. How about you? You don't like talk about judgment. You're, you're, you're not all into that, except when somebody has mistreated you. And then you want what? Justice. You want justice. So it's a really hard thing to get away from. It's a very difficult thing to get away from. So in heaven, we are gonna, I'm going to read this right here in Revelation 19, one of the key chapters in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the writer, and what is he bringing? This is what he says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. With justice, he judges and he wages war. Oh my goodness, Jesus is coming to wage a war against what? Against injustice. Against injustice. Now, I had read earlier, right, at the end of Revelation 21, like, oh, yes, not for the sexually immoral people. Now, here's the thing. We don't, you know, often churches get a pretty bad rap, like, oh, man, why are you guys messing with everybody's private life and stuff like this? So I want to remind you. I just want to remind you here. I don't want to hear about judgment. You don't want to hear about judgment. You don't want anybody messing with your personal and private life unless you've been sexually abused, unless you've been sexually mistreated. Then all of a sudden it's like, I welcome the, let's bring the judgment on for me and for everybody else because this needs to stop. So this is being written to a group of people who are suffering terrible injustice, terrible injustice, and they welcome this. And this actually gives them hope for the future that there's a home, there's a place, there's a God of justice who's going to put everything right again. And maybe, just I want to just try to be fair and I want to try to think this through, maybe that gives us more hope and more meaning and something more to live for. Maybe it actually speaks to the, what, we're, what is in our hearts, what we sense to be true, what we crave and what we long for, for justice, because justice is something that just keeps coming out in us. Why does it keep coming out? Why is it something that we crave? Why is it that people who say, I don't believe in justice or judgment, and I don't believe in that, that there's a moral objective, I don't believe in that, but when they're wrong, they crave justice. It, could it be because there is a creator, God, and he's wired us in such a way to desire that? Could it be? Is that another evidence that God exists and that Jesus Christ will right every wrong? Look what Psalm 96 says. 
Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and everything in it shout its praise. Why? Why should we do that? Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. The book of Revelation is saturated with that same sentiment, a joy. And if you're suffering... The pains, your life isn't going the way that you had hoped it to go, even as good as it is. Then there is great hope and meaning when we hear about a God who's going to put everything right. Now, let me tell you something else that's saturated with heaven. The spirituals. Spirituals that were sung by slaves. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming forward to carry me. Anybody know how it ends? Coming forward to carry me home. Home, precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm alone. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home, home. The reality is that heaven causes hope because we know there's a home that we're longing for. So if you don't believe in heaven, or you have a friend or a family member or a coworker or doesn't, These are things that we, if you happen to be a follower of Christ as I, really need to think about. This is why Colossians says, think, think, think about it, because sometimes we just don't think about enough and then we don't have good answers. And the Bible tells us we should study to show ourselves approved. And we need to think about these consistent beliefs. Really can't be hope and there really can't be meaning unless we have thought these through. Now, in 1947, Howard Thurman spoke at Harvard University. There was a series of lectures given. I think it was the Ingersoll Lecture Series on Immortality. So there was a bunch of lectures given over a period of time. Somebody who was quite wealthy gave a bunch of money to do it. And every, well, a lot of people agree that his lecture was the best in all the series, 1947. And he specifically talked about the spirituals. And this is kind of what he is saying in here. First of all, he says that heaven is a fact. Like the spirituals, there's so much about heaven and crowns and robes and all of this kind of stuff. He said that wouldn't really be hope unless these things were actually real, unless they actually really exist. That they believed in them. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming to take me home. And basically saying, think about this. If you were transported in time, everybody, and you went back and you got the opportunity to sit down a couple hundred years ago, sit down with a group of slaves... And you just said to them, hey, you know, you, you guys probably should be better educated. You know, there's really not a God and there's not a heaven. So, you know, this is all there is. There's not going to be any justice. I mean, what you're experiencing here, this is, this is it. There's no justice. There's nobody who's going to come and make things right. There's no future. There's no future life in which all of your deep desires, that living water that Christ talks about, that your deep desires are actually ever going to be fulfilled. This is it. And there is no meaning. There's no meaning to life. No meaning, no justice, no purpose. There, there is no hope. Now, I'd like all of you to get out there and live a full life of existence. Can you imagine doing that? And Thurman basically says that they chose the power of a Christian hope. A power of a Christian hope over the power of a secular hope. It's powerful. Revelation. The spirituals. C.S. Lewis says those Christians who did the most earthly good, I read this the first week, did the most earthly good were the ones that thought heaven about heaven the most. Are you thinking enough about heaven? Are you really thinking it through? 
all the way from the Stoic philosophers, Epicurus, even to this modern-day philosophers who are secular humanists will say, you know what? Even though we want you to think, 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 and think things through, so it's really about your rational, intellectual thought, the smart people, blah, blah, blah. When it comes to death, don't think about it at all. It's very odd. Don't think about death at all. Because when you die, you're just not, you're not here. There's nothing to think about. And it's kind of weird that the Bible and Christian philosophers say, no, 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 think a lot about death. Think it through. Think it through. What does this mean? And what does it say about us? And what we naturally desire, is it another sign? C.S. Lewis says it's the, the Christians who thought the most about heaven who did the most earthly good. Aim for heaven and get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither one. And he says it was those Christians who thought a lot about heaven who brought down the terrible things that were happening in the Colosseum, and they also brought down the global slave trade. Fairly impressive things to do, actually. But it was those followers of Jesus Christ who thought about heaven that that happened. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a clear call to be courageous because of heaven and our world needs it. Will you be courageous and do that? Larissa McFarhar, she wrote a book called uh, Strangers Drowning. And so in this book, she really wanted to, she was curious, actually. She, she is an atheist. She's a secular humanist. She has no religious belief whatsoever, doesn't have a religious background, but she was very, very curious in why people practice extreme altruism. Like, why are people going to certain areas of the world where their lives are in danger? I mean, they could be attacked, like they're out some distant place, they could be attacked by an animal and killed, or there's plagues going on, and they could be infected and they could die, and so she just wanted to know, so she did a long research on this. And in an interview that she did with The Guardian, she talks about that. And you know what she found? By and large, by and large, almost everybody who are in those situations are highly religious people. They're not secular humanists. They're not atheists. They're pretty much, for the most part, highly religious people. And the interviewer said, does that trouble you? I mean, because obviously you're inspired by what they're doing and you think it's great and you're a secular humanist. She says, yes, it's very, actually, it's very troubling to me. Why do you think they're doing what they're doing? Well, because this life isn't all there is. And because this life isn't all there is, they know that there's a greater hope. And for me, as a secular humanist, this is all there is. Like, I got to take what I can get out of this life because once it's over, it's over. There's nothing more. And then she says, we have to wrestle with the fact that we are all alone in this universe. Heaven, thinking about it, gives us hope. What do you want to be true? This is really important. What do you want to be true? Thomas Nagel, NYU professor, says, who is an atheist, says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm really frustrated by the fact that there's some people I know and love and respect and who are really smart that actually believe in God, and that frustrates me. But I want it to be true. What do you want to be true? We all have a belief bias, right? We just do. But what do you want to be true? How about another question? What do you need to be true? What do you need to be true? What is it that you crave? What is it all people crave to be true? We all crave justice. And what does that show us? If we crave justice, that maybe there must be a God of love. We crave love. Is it just evolution that love exists? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that, you know, we just realized through a long period of time that 
we had to have love to survive, and so it's love is really selfish in nature because I've got to have love just to survive. Strong eat the weak. What do you need to be true? What is true? What do you want to be true? How is it true? What, it, what brings meaning and purpose to our life? You know, it seems to me that we have all been built for hope. We've been built for hope. This is what makes life work. I want to con- uh, conclude some thoughts I had from last week from Luc Ferre. I'm going to read you some quotes. He is a French philosopher. He's a secular humanist. He's an, he's an atheist. But he does a fantastic job. It is on your list of books. If you want to read it, it's a brief history thought. It's fantastic. I said this last week. I'll say it again right now. He's probably done more to help me understand the hope I have in heaven than any other person ever as an atheist. It's just wonderful. I can't recommend the book enough. Really clarifies some things about Christianity. And in it, towards the end, he kind of hints that, you know, he, he wishes he could cross that line. He hopes to. And you just kind of get the feeling that maybe one day he might cross that line and he might become a follower of Jesus Christ. But he does such a great job of saying, what is the context of the book of Revelation? Like, what setting? It was written in the midst of Stoicism. Stoicism. Well, Stoicism is very similar to Buddhism, that we need to live a life of detachment. Detach yourself from life. Detach yourself from your most important relationships. Is that functional? Well, we know clearly, everybody, that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your relationship. So does it make sense for you to detach Does that lead to a full life? And that's what Stoicism, and that is what Buddhism really talks about, okay? Here's what he says. Remember, this is is an atheist writing on Christianity. The Christian response to mortality for believers at least is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but to also beat death itself. And by doing so in terms of individual identity, Rather than anonymity or abstraction, it seems to be the only version that offers a truly definitive victory of personal immortality over our condition as mortals. He continues on. Christianity, whose promise of the resurrection of the body means that we shall be reunited with those we love after death. I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. We've been built for hope. We've been built for love. We've been built for meaning and for purpose. The Bible talks about an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, everlasting love. Romans chapter 8 says, we will never be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. Well, that's really what we long for. 1 Corinthians 13, which is included in a lot of weddings, right? But it's an, I always call it the love chapter of the Bible. It's fantastic, the things that are in it. Here's how it ends, 1 Corinthians 13. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. They'll last forever, but the greatest of these is love. We've been built for love, a love that lasts forever. Does that make the most sense to you? Even Taylor Swift knows this is true. Okay? Her album in two days has just soared past Lady Gaga's album from A Star Is Born. Took her two days. Let me give you some of her words. You can sing along if you know it. I'm not going to sing. I'm going to say it. Okay, from her song, Lover, here's the lyrics. Can I go where you go? Can we always be this close forever and ever? Thank you. Take me out. Take me home. You're my, 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 my lover. Even Taylor Swift knows that somebody has built us for a love that lasts absolutely forever. Why does this theme keep coming back over and over again? Could it be because there's a God and there's a heaven and there's hope and there's a home for us, an everlasting home? So I want to say, in conclusion, this thing here. 
Here's the one fill in the blank for you. Here's your action point, what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. We should always be prepared to give hope. Like we should always be prepared to give hope away. The world needs hope. I need hope. You need hope. And what we're being called to in the book of Revelation is to be a community of hope. Not just people who feel individual hope, but who will think about heaven enough to transform other people's lives by pouring that hope into other people. Because we thought so deeply about it. The Bible says we should set our sights on it over and over again. We need to think about this. Jesus is in heaven. He's the reason for our hope. We have home. We have a home there. We have justice. We have all these things, and we need to think it through. You know, one of the things that is coming up recently is that death is just natural, right? Diana Athill, who is a British editor who died just recently, wrote something not too long ago. She's, I think she's 96 years old. She said, it's silly to be afraid of death because death is just natural. That's a stoic thought. Death is just natural. You die, you know nothing. Why you be afraid of it? Because when you're, once you're dead, you're dead. There's nothing else that's there. It's silly. It's just totally natural. That same sentiment, everybody, that it's natural is seen in the Lion King, isn't it? Now, I love the Lion King. Every time we have a dedication, we have a Lion King moment right here, don't we? I mean, so I love the Lion King, but what is the idea from the Lion King? Right? Simba, right? Simba? I just told you I loved it. Simba. Yes, Simba. So the dad says to Simba, you know, Simba, one day we're going to die and we're going to go into the soil and we're going to fertilize the ground. The antelopes are going to eat the grass and then we're going to eat the antelopes. And it's a big cycle that just goes over and over and again. Peter Kreft, who is a professor up in Boston, shares a story. He says, you know, he knows somebody, uh, pretty good friends, and uh, they have a son who's eight and the son has a cousin who's about three years old and the three-year-old little boy passed away. And so the eight-year-old son was very bothered, obviously, by this and very, very sad. And so the mom, who is a secular uh, person, does not have any belief in God, was very true. She didn't try to just give him some kind of milk. She gave him truth. says, look, you know, your cousin is gone and he's in the ground. He's in the ground now and he's fertilizing, you know, the ground around us. And so basically, I mean, he's, he's, he's around us all the time. He's a part of our lives that way. And the little eight-year-old boy went running from the room and says, I don't want him to be fertilizer. Isn't there something in all of us? Is that something not right? Well, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus makes it really clear that death is not natural. He's very angry at death. That's what the whole story is about Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. So we should set our sights. I want to end with one just quick story because here's what the call is very clearly from Revelation. Will you set your sights on heaven? Will you allow that hope and the meaning and the purpose and the justice, will you allow that to fill you? Will you think it through? And then will you share it with other people? We have the courage to share it with other people because other people need it. It's not just about you. It's not just about your hope. It's about a world that needs hope. A number of years ago, a bunch of years ago, actually, Chris and I were down in Florida. We were on vacation in Florida. We stopped at a Dairy Queen and we were enjoying some ice cream. They had little picnic tables out back and we were just having a good time eating away at the ice cream and a guy drives up on a big Harley day. He's a big guy. He's about six foot six, big old guy. And he got some ice cream and he was at the table, just, I don't know, 15 feet away from us. And we're just having a good time. And Crystal looks over at him and says, says to me, he says, he looks really sad. Go talk to him about Jesus. <laughs> now, 
if, if and over in West Falls, you've probably done this too. You've seen the banners in the lobby and us along with the big blue wall out there. You've seen the banners, right? You've seen the sanguine, the yellow sanguine. Krista's totally a sanguine. She's a big time extrovert. She'll talk to anybody. I'm not. I'm definitely blue. I'm an introvert. That just scared me to death. I said, I'm not going to go talk to him about Jesus. I'm going to go talk to this big old guy about Jesus. She said, she knows how to get me. That's the thing. That's the problem with her. She knows how to get me. She said, coward. Chicken. Buck, 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 buck. You're right. So, so here we go. Here we go, man. We're launching up. I'm just trying to enjoy some ice cream. We're talking about Jesus. And he was sad. He was very sad. This great big old guy was sad. So we talked to him for a long time. And in the conversation, we found out where he was working. He was working at a motorcycle shop. So we went and bought him a Bible and found the place where he was working the next day. We pulled up out front. I said, here it is. She said, now go in and give him the Bible. I'm like, could this be any worse? Did I have to marry a sanguine? Uh, so I went in there and I gave him the Bible. And I tell you what, this great big old guy, six foot six motorcycle guy, started to get tears in his eyes. Everybody, do you have the courage to share hope that our world really needs? Our world needs to know there's a God in heaven that loves us and is bringing justice, is bringing us the life that we always have wanted. Will you take up that cause and lead? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us this wonderful word from Scripture, this incredible book of Revelation, which is about hope and a home and meaning and justice, that there's another world. God, not only help us to keep focusing on it as Colossians tells us to do, but help us to share that hope with a world that needs to know there is another life and there is meaning. In Christ's name, amen.